morning. It's a privilege to greet you in Jesus' name today and be here with you. One thing I appreciate about how our churches have worked together is this pulpit exchange. We enjoy hearing new people up there. I'm sure the people there do. And uh, we enjoy the chance to visit here sometimes. I was on the phone with Galen this morning. We passed each other on Route 11 and waved. He going that way, I coming this way. And uh, it's a privilege to be here this morning. I grappled with what to share today. And I am not above second-guessing myself when I choose something to share. And I feel that the, uh, the message today will probably not win souls to Christ and may not spark revival. It may not even encourage you for the week, but I hope it's at least something that helps us uh, in our quest to live for the Lord the way He expects and, uh, and learn what He wants for His people, His church. I guess we could just give this message the title of the value of identity. If you're not sure if there is a value in identity, you could look at a young man abandoned in a big city somewhere without father or mother and left to himself and what he might choose to do next. He has some options, but a lot of people in that situation would find a gang somewhere because uh, he needs a sense of purpose, a sense of family, a sense of of unity with something else because, and, and a lot of people say that, the reason they would go join a gang is simply because they feel like they want to belong somewhere. Or he could join the army. It's some place where he can see his own values reflected in a group around him and feel like he's part of something bigger than himself. So identity is important. One of the struggles of getting older is memory loss. Now some of us struggle with that already, whether we're old or not, but uh, you know, short-term memory might go first, things like where I left my glasses and uh, what was I coming here to pick up and find. But it gets a little more serious when you lose the longer-term memories, when the incidents and memories of long ago, even relationships and uh, accomplishments, things that you've triumphed and, and done in life. And when a person begins to lose that kind of memory, he's slowly losing his grip on his own identity, who he is as a person, uh, who he has been, his point of reference, his personal framework, his sense of value starts slipping with that as well. It's a sad thing to see. But what's true of an individual can also be true of a society. And what's true of a society can also be true of a church. When there's no history, there's no identity, there's no past, there's no precedent, there's no defining value. And in its absence, People or a group feels driven to redefine and re-identify themselves under whatever making, whatever mold, whatever uh, heading they choose. There is an interesting study in the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And we go back there. We're not going to take the time to look deeply at that, but there's a, there's a few things there that are interesting to point out or look at. It's the time when Israel has come into Canaan, they're almost there, and there's three transitions of leadership and vision and the carrying on of purpose in this group. And as soon as we look at how that transfer was handed over, uh, what the consequences were, and the results were of that, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, the whole book is basically Moses speaking to Israel before he hands the reins over to Joshua. The whole book is his calling back to remember a few things, a review of their history, their victories, their failures, reviews of God's covenants and God's laws, and a very specific 
reminder of who they were as a people, their identity, their, their uh, called out from other nations unto God. And sprinkled through there is vision to conquer and live in this new land. And with those words, Moses died and handed the reins to Joshua. And Joshua carried on the same purpose and the same spirit and the same vision as Moses. And the same knowledge of God and did well. If you go all the way then to Joshua 24, Joshua ends the, comes to the end of his life. And if you read his words, he called all the people to Shechem, all the tribes together, gather the elders together, and said many of the same things that Moses said. Remember your history. Uh, renew your vows to serve the Lord. And uh, But who did he pass the baton to? Joshua did not hand things over to another one man. He handed over to the tribes, the elders, uh, the families across Israel. That's who he was speaking to. And so Joshua died and left this sense of purpose in their minds. And we could say it was partially successful at least. Um, in Joshua 24:31, it says, And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. So they did well to that point. Joshua's generation and all the next generation did what they should have. They lived for the Lord and remembered these things. But if you look into the next transition, the one that follows these great generations that had come into the land and helped with the conquering, it said they served the Lord for themselves. They did not lose their personal memory of what God had done. But somehow there was a slow loss of collective memory from that point on. And there was a failure in this next generation. This is what it says in Judges 2. We're all the way into Judges now. It says, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And that's the beginning of a bad beginning this next generation had collective amnesia, collective Alzheimer's about the things that God had done. Spiritual dementia. History had faded, complacency grew, and so their concepts of God were very irrelevant and very uh, indistinct. Now I realize, and I think it was mentioned in Sunday school, that every generation is in imminent danger of losing their knowledge of God as it goes into the next generation. Now, each generation bears its own responsibility, to be sure. But at the same time, sometimes the failure of one can be traced back to the failure of the previous generation, something in that transition that did not go well. And if you look into this study, there's at least four things that Scripture mentions that the, Joshua, the generation that outlived Joshua did not do well in handing things over to the following. It seems like uh, one thing they failed in was they failed to fight their battles to a conclusion. And to read that time after time, it says they did not drive out so-and-so, and they did not drive out this enemy. And, and they seem to be content to just carve out a comfortable living space among them and settle down there and be comfortable and just let things stand as they were. And they were content to dwell among undefeated enemies. That, that was one problem. I believe it can be true for us. When we fail to to uh, confront our battles, whatever they might be, that our generation faces, whether it's materialism or moral issues or worldliness, we simply leave 
a bigger battle for the next generation to face. The second thing they did, somehow they failed to connect their children to their grandparents. There was a, there was, they were the ones that were supposed to carry the torch from, from grandparents to grandchildren. Somehow that didn't happen. And we can't live in the past. Each generation must know the Lord for ourselves. But I believe it's true that when we ignore and cut our ties to the history that was given to us, it introduces a shallowness and lack of perspective that, that would have brought with it. Now recently I heard someone promoting this very thing. They said it would be good if this generational disconnect would happen in every generation. They said it would be good if young people would simply look for the input of their peers and their counterparts and not listen to the older generation at all. That they could therefore rise to new heights, gain better things, and not be weighted down with the problems of the ancestors. They promoted that as a good thing. I believe the opposite of that to be true. The third thing they failed in, I believe, was to instill this corporal sense of identity, who they were, what they stood for. And here's a thing that I believe to be true. Whenever a people or a person loses or lacks a sense of identity, they'll tend to be drawn toward the strong identities around them because they don't have... See, uh, for insecure people, influence always flows in one direction. It's not... The insecure person influencing for good the people that are around, but it's being influenced by the ones that, that have a purpose and have a direction and know where they want to go in life. And it seems to be that way as they lost their view of the Lord, they followed the nation's gods and became like the nations around. And several times in Judges it says they did what was right in their own eyes because they had nothing left to collectively draw them in a, in a good way, in a good direction. And they tended to adapt the identities of the nations around them. And the fourth thing that's fairly obvious at this point, that generation somehow failed to pass on the vision that they had received as they came into this land, this sense of purpose, this national pursuit. Somehow the vision of the wanderers to go in and possess the land was lost on the children of the conquerors to hold that gift that God had given them. So from this little study, it would be clear to me that a successful generational transition is always concerned about what heritage we have received, what identity we, we own, and what vision we hope to impart to the following uh, generation. Those things always must be part of a, of a uh, successful transitional thing. Now, during this same time period, of fading identity and changing values and loss of national purpose. There was another group that was quietly living among Israel as they settled down in Canaan. And if you look in Deuteronomy, Judges, all the way up into Chronicles and Samuel, I believe, this, there's this faint thread, and sometimes mentioned, this, this people that were called the Kenites. And uh, the first time they pop up is because Moses married one. So Moses married... Uh, the daughter of a Kenite. And I guess they lived among the Midianites. And in Mo Numbers uh, 10.29, there's a little interesting dialogue there between Moses and Hobab, which was the son of his father-in-law, his brother-in-law. 
He says, come with us. We're, we're coming back out of Egypt. We're going toward Canaan. Why don't you come along and, and live with us there? And whatever God does for us, he'll do for you. We're expecting good things. And they said, no, we're content where we're at. And Moses insisted, no, we're going to the desert. You can be eyes for us. Come along. And he doesn't say exactly there what they did. But if you go to Judges 1.16, it says this. And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. So I want you to just get this picture that during this time after Joshua's death and this slow spiritual amnesia of, of God's people, the Kenites were there and living among them somewhat separate but somewhat partaking of that identity and that knowledge of the law and that, that knowledge of God. And if you go forward into 2 Kings 10, you, you meet a son of the Kenites. Uh, 2 Kings 10, 15 this is a very interesting passage in Israel's history where uh, Jehu is this point anointed king. Uh, Ahab has been dead about 12 years. There's been two kings since, but Jezebel was still there. And Jehu went to her place in Jezreel, I believe, and she was thrown down and killed. He went to the next city, I guess, and killed the, or had the 70 sons of Ahab killed. And now he's on his way to do vengeance somewhere else. And he meets this Jonadab uh, and read of this encounter in 2 Kings 10. It says this, And when he was departed thence, he lighted on Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he saluted him and said to him, Is thine heart right as my heart is with thy heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. If it be, give me thine hand. And he gave him his hand. And he took him up, took him to him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And so they made him ride in his chariot. And so Jehonadab here gets in the chariot and rides with him for his next phase of cleansing of Israel. And the next thing they did was went to the seat of Baal worship. He invited all the Baal worshipers in his temple, uh, had guards at the door, and slaughtered them before they came out. And he threw down the temple and, and did everything he could to stamp out Baal worship. He finished destroying Ahab's family. So all this, Jehonadab was watching. And he watched other things happen. Jehu was zealous in his vengeance, but probably lazy in his reforms. He was zealous about stamping out the enemies of the Lord, but a little bit lazy about bringing his own life into the true worship of God. And it's, it mentions specifically about Jehu did not depart from Jeroboam's sins. He worshipped the golden calves. He made priests of the basis of the people. He took no heed to walk in the law of God. He was zealous about destroying Baal, but he was not very zealous in following the Lord himself. And about that point, God started cutting Israel short. They lost the lambs across the Jordan, and, and Israel was being tightened in, and, and its, its belt was being tightened, as it were, and losing God's favor and blessing. Now, somewhere during Jehu's reign, during Jonadab's lifetime, and I'm not sure if we could say what prompted him to do this, but he instructed his family, I want you to do things differently. I want you to not drink wine. I want you to not build houses. I want you to uh, not plant fields and, and vineyards. And, and we don't know exactly what all he did when he did this, but we see that in the context of everything that was happening in Israel at that point. But I can say for certainty this. Jehonadab was not concerned about the sin of Moab. He was not concerned about the debauchery of Philistia, 
He was concerned in responding to the backsliddenness and spiritual amnesia of the people among whom he lived, right there in Israel. That's what he was responding to. But you fast forward 200 or 220 years and come to Jeremiah 35. I'd like to read a passage there. I know our time is going to be short. We may not get more than introducing this idea, and you can take it from there. But in Jeremiah 35, we will just read a few of these. this passage. This is a time of, of Jeremiah prophesying uh, to Israel, and Israel not listening. And it says, The word which came into Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go into the house of the Rechabites, the descendants of this Jehonadab, son of Rechab, and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brethren, and all his sons from the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them into the house of the Lord, and into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, and so on. I'll skip some of those hard names. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups, and I said unto them, Drink ye wine. And they said, We will drink no wine. And for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he has charged us to drink no wine all our days. We, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in. Neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed. But we have dwelt in tents, and we have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came up into the land, that we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. Now, the story is very interesting. I don't know if, if Jeremiah knew, I guess he probably did, but what the commitment of the Rechabites were. But he brought them into the temple the holiest place, and set them in the room of God's chosen people, holy people. And there he himself, God's chosen prophet, set before them the very thing that they had committed not to do, and served them wine. And I can just imagine, Rechabites looked at each other, and looked at Jeremiah, this great prophet, and said, we, we can't do this. We're sorry, we can't do this, because way, way back in 1804, our great-great-great-great-grandfather told us we shouldn't do it, we've never done it. And I guess even if you ask us, we won't be doing it now. And that was their, uh, their, their response. Now put yourself in their shoes. Uh, they shared sort of a history with all the rest of the Israelites that are living there among them for many years. They have some of their own history. They're among this nation of called-out people, but with a unique identity among them. Maybe they stood out like the Amish of the Old Testament. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's sort of a byword in Israel. Go to tent, go out of your tent and go to town. Here comes a Rechabite. Maybe a young man would look for a wife and wonder, is anybody going to marry a Rechabite? We're different. Maybe people said, well, he's as sober as a Rechabite. Because they drank their wine. It's sort of a byword, maybe. I'm just 
just assuming. There's several things that we could point out in this passage before we move on to our 21st century that we should point out. That the things that they held to were commands of men, not commands of God. Uh, God never gave them this injunction. This was never something they would have found in the Bible to do. The second thing is interesting to note that they counted these things as valuable but not unbendable, not indispensable. Because they said, uh, we haven't drunk wine, we haven't planted vineyards, but because we saw the danger in staying out in the wilderness, we came to Jerusalem because there's armies out there. And they bent that rule. They came here, and I don't know if they lived in houses or lived in tents in the vacant lots, but there they were. And the third thing that I do find instructive is that God approved of what they were doing. Not the position itself, maybe, because he never made an injunction to or not to do these things, or specifically approved them, but the fact that they had one and kept it was valuable to God. Now I want to quickly point out what maybe someone here would have, couldn't wait to say. First of all, this is Old Testament. This is not a doctrinal foundation for anything. I would agree with that. And uh, uh, more than that, I would also say that the point of this story, God is not pointing out that we should be explicitly obedient to our ancestors. That's also not what he's pointing out. What God was doing was simply looking for an example and used it. And here he is speaking to Israel day after day, and they're not listening. And so he finds the Rechabites and says, look at these men. These 220 years, they've been listening to what a great, 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 great grandfather said. And you can't even listen to me. That was sort of the point he points out in the rest of this, this passage. But if you go to the last two verses, though this were simply an example, and though this were simply something God was using to work on the conscience of Israel, he says to the Rechabites, because you listened to Jonadab your father, there will never lack a man in Rechab to stand before me. In other words, because you've been committed to do things the way you were taught, because you saw value in living for the Lord this way, I am granting you the blessing of my acknowledgement and permanence. There's a sense of permanence in you and your descendants because of what you've chosen to do. But we could use that as a springboard to discuss some observations about our own thing here. Of all the parts of our life that we have to grapple with, the one part that we can't change is our history, what's been given to us, what's been granted to us, our heritage, we call it. We can't change it. We can't choose it. There are several things we can do with it, though. We can ignore it. Some people choose to do that. And a lot of people would, would prefer and maybe feel it's best just to assume that all moral obligation, all point of reference starts where I was born and from here forward. And that's where we're going to make our choices and live like that. What came before really has no bearing on my current day decisions. Some people rewrite it. They cull it. They sterilize it. They try to redefine it. They cover the bad and highlight the good. And if you're up on your, history, your, your current events, you'll see a lot of that going on. Even in Virginia, uh, people that would rather just smooth over, ignore the things that are in our history that maybe are not so appreciative. Or we can learn from it. 
and try to have an honest view of both good and bad and assess the outcomes that came from that. I would suggest that the history we've been granted would be comprised of three elements. And we're also in the, in the process of making history based on these same three things. One thing that history is is simply a series of events that happen to us. Uh, life situations, different environments we live in, uh, the kind of culture we are, the kind of government that's ruling at this point, the society we're in, that's one thing. That's the part we can't really do much about. But history also gives us the choices and the decisions and the responses in light of the context people live in. And that's where we're at, too. It's not just the events, but it's our choices based on that. It's our reaction to those things. We can't help when war breaks out. We can't help when nationalism is high. We can't help when there's poverty or when there's abundance. But then we make choices. And those choices are also part of history. And the third thing that history gives us is a series of outcomes. The events, the choices, the results. The events, the choices, the results. And that has been given to us, and we're in the current of repeat, process of repeating that, and that's what we're going to give to the next generation. Often it's said that history will judge what we do today. And that's very true. We learn from it or we'll ignore it. And I believe that our job is to try to discern what we've been handed through a lens of, of Scripture and also through a wise understanding of outcomes, uh, what has been done before, and learn from that. Scripture gives us two things, two ways to look at what came before, and they seem almost contradictory, but I think together they form somewhat the, uh, the two sides of this thing that it would be good to keep in mind. It is not wisdom to simply embrace without question the examples that have been given to us. It's not wisdom. Hezekiah said this to Israel in Second Chronicles 30. Be not like your fathers, like your brethren, which trespassed against the Lord. First Corinthians 10 says, Your fathers were given a great opportunity, but don't do it like they did it. God said, don't do it. Look at their example. Look at the outcomes. Don't repeat those mistakes. That's part of what we do with our history. And we don't need to look far in our history to see some shameful things. Brother Eli mentioned reading through genealogy books. Sometimes the math doesn't add up right. Uh, there's patterns of fear and superstition that were in our heritage. There's other practices that we would deem less than ideal. And there's some things we would look at and say, let's not do it that way. There's a better way to serve God. And I'm glad for changes. There's good changes. We're not called to judge those that had to do it when they did it. We're called to take a look at the godliness and the outcomes of it. We don't know what pressures they faced. We don't know what, uh, what their current enlightenment was. We don't understand the dynamics of their decisions. We're all played into that. We can't say what we would have done in their shoes. But we can look at what was the environment, what was their choice, and what was the outcome. If we're wise about history, we can see those three things. And the best we can do is look at the results of that choice from 
from our perspective and through the lens the scripture gives us. But the second side of that advice the scripture gives seems to be conflicting. It, it says, don't be like your fathers. But it also says in Jeremiah 6, 16, thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where is the good way and walk therein and ye shall find rest for your souls. What he was saying to that generation was there was a time when your fathers were doing better at serving me than you were doing and it'd be good for you to find out how they did it. Search it out. Find their values. Find their ways and do it that way. And I said it's dangerous to accept what we've been given without questioning but to seek to reinvent ourselves with no regard for the heritage we've been given is both dangerous and arrogant, I think. If we look at these, our, our history, whatever we've been granted and given, well, there's a couple things that, that we should discern. We should discern the godly thing that our heritage produced that was good. We, we can do that and look at that. There's a reason that God says to his faith, follow, considering the end of your, their conversation. You see, godliness is not in the saying, it's in the doing. Godliness is not in the intent, but the results. It's not in the theories, it's not in the ideals, but it's the outworking, the actions, the faithfulness, and the consequences. It's, it's sometimes fun to debate theory. It's fun to discuss ideals and discuss scriptures. Sometimes it gets warmer than it should. But Scripture doesn't say, follow the best debater. Scripture simply says, follow the, the results that seem to be the end of their conversation. Uh, and that, that's what we don't get in our generation. We have to wait a while to see that. Uh, we have to look back a little bit to see that. And God points us to that. But we don't have to look far to find men who have left a legacy that we wouldn't mind leaving ourselves. And it'd be good to leave godly individuals with solid character and uh, fruits of righteousness and, and evidences. And uh, it's produced men that you know well, uh, Brother Eli that died a year and a half ago, Granddaddy, and uh, some of the patriarchs in this church that would have been here long ago. Um, they faced things we didn't have to face. They made decisions in times that we didn't have to deal with. And they had to carve a life out of an economic environment that probably would, was harder than it is today. And, and yet those things were the environments that produced good things. There was Christian witness and testimony in those things. The other thing that Paul points out one place, I'm sorry, this is back in Israel, discern the times and the manner in which God approved and blessed and look at the environment in which that happened. Look where you were when I blessed you. And look where you were when I turned away from you. And make your choices based on that. Identify the times of God's visitation. Now we need to move on here a little bit. This, this history that we've inherited leads us to the next step. And uh, something else is forming here as we look at these things. And, and it's been forming for years. But this sense of who we are, who I am, what I belong to, uh, where my roots are, what I look at as valuable, what I stand for. Nations have a sense of identity. 
And if you look at history, you can see what tends to break that down. Sometimes one invading country comes in and they seek to overcome the language. They seek to change the, the, the customs in order to break down that strong sense of national identity that they had. Uh, families have an identity. Children have one. For a child to say that I live at 590 Dusty Rock Road, Rhino, Virginia, is a bit of a sense of uh, belonging, a sense of uh, security. A house is a home there, not because uh, where it is, but who belongs in it, what the limits are around it, what the schedule is in it, uh, who gets to be there and who doesn't get to be there. There's a certain sense of this is what it is. If you would open that to every whim and every every visitor for any length of time and any schedule, that child is soon to lose his sense of belonging there. There's a sense of identity in that. Christians have one. I'd like to suggest this morning that uh, the Christian's identity comes to us in two headings. Uh, the first and the primary one comes from 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. So those are, it's one way to say it. Uh, our identity is in Christ and with God's people. That's, that's our identity. And it should always be that way. There's other scriptures that point that out. Jesus is our redemption, our sanctification, our, our center of values, our standard of truth, our primary treasure. That's what we identify with. And so it's easy for us to say, my identity is found in Jesus Christ. That's where our roots go. We are a people of this book, we say. And so we don't mind being a little stubborn about this. We, we believe it. We've read it. We've, as so much as we understand it, we promote it. And that's good. Sometimes we would rather shy away from uniqueness, but God's people are unique. There's no two ways about it. We were at the zoo a couple of weeks ago and uh, walking through this crowded place, and I noticed another family there quite well dressed, quite properly dressed and modest. And out of the corner of my ear, I heard that little girl whisper to her mother, are they Christians? And their mother looked at her and said, yes, they are. And we knew them, and they knew us, though we never exchanged a word. Um, just, we're just a little bit different, you know. We're unique. And uh, that's just how it works. Now, discerning people say, yes, my identity is found in Jesus Christ and in his word. But as good as that is all by itself, the discerning person realizes that that this is a broad tent. If you ask anyone from any other denomination, whether it's Jehovah's Witness, Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, whatever, likely they'll say the same thing. We believe in Jesus Christ. He is our foundation. That's who we are. So if that's the way it is, what about the practical side? What about the, uh, what does it mean to be called out and peculiar? What does it mean to be a holy nation to him? If you listen to a, I'm not sure what terms to use. You have Baptists preach a message about salvation. And a Mennonite preach a message about salvation. Probably even a Catholic preach about salvation. And maybe even Jehovah's Witness preach about salvation. You might very much hear the same doctrine in all four. It's there. The same points. The same salvation through the blood of Christ there. 
But behind the teaching, there's a way of life that backs that up. And if an audience would sit there and watch this preacher preach the message, the gospel, the doctrine, they might subconsciously think, that's what he's saying, but the life that goes behind it, that, that must be what he means. Um, in some cases, it could be, you know, the virgin, the pope, the saints. Another version might be, you know, God and country. Another version might be something else. And this one might be something else because through the message, they're looking at what it must mean in the life of this person because of the way it's practically lived out in, in everyday life. The message is similar, which maybe implies a little bit different. Now, many things you'll know about the Rechabites here. But he decided, as he looked at Israel around him, he decided... We all subscribe to the same set of facts. But in this context of the nation decaying and of religious amnesia, I want to set for my family a place and a concise position and identity that sets us apart unto God in a real way, special way. And then he stuck with it. Now it's true that we are called to this identity with Christ that cannot be replaced with anything else. And so we need to uh, commit to that first of all. But it's also just as true there's a practical outwork of this identity that shows up the way we live our life and the way we do it. And here we are at Will's Ridge, and here we are at Bethel. And the same question, how do these things work out practically? What decisions do we make? What applications will we have? Where will we draw lines of fellowship? And I think by grappling with these things, and deciding these things, we're simply acknowledging two lines of scriptural truth that I believe to be just as true now as when they were written in scripture. Uh, way back then, it was said that, that we were called to be a saved and called out people. And the world that is lost is no friend of the child of God. That's just the truth that we recognize to be true. In our outworking daily life, we're called to acknowledge that. And together as a church, agree with that. Its system, its entanglements, its entertainment, its values. And we grapple with these things. We're simply realizing the dangers that exist there. And simply the way we, we, we think. And the second fact is just as true. Is that there is a tendency toward decay and backsliddenness. Even among those that would profess to be on that firm foundation. We talked about Sunday school among those who would claim the name of Christ. I believe that, that just to think that anyone who claims to be on that foundation is truly a child of God is both naive and un unscriptural because Scripture says very clearly that many will be deceived and withdraw yourself from anyone that calls himself a brother which walks disorderly. Pull yourselves away from men of corrupt minds that think the gain is godliness don't associate with those that have a form of godliness and deny the power of it. Those are things that are written way back then, and it still says that in the latter days there'll be a great falling away, and, and we can't begin to believe that he's better than he used to be. And so we come together and realize these things. And that also plays into what we are as a people and what we identify with. I would love to be able to say this morning that uh, 
this class were to come together around God's word and simply believe that this is what's going to be our identity and define it. And though that should be the primary thing that, that forges our identity and makes points us in a certain direction and, and uh, informs our decisions, it is also impossible to just slough off everything I've been given and have been made. It's just impossible to do. I heard of a church. I've never been there myself. It was told about this group of people that had come together recently to form this congregation. They wanted to be much more uh, biblical much more open. They wanted to be more uh, honest with Scripture and obedient as possible to the Word of God. And so they, they came together with that great attitude and that, that good desire. But uh, it was told to me that really they, they still think just like Eastern because that, that was their background and that's where they came from and that's what was there into them. And they try as they might, it, it's just hard to make that be different. We need to grapple with that and understand and accept that's just the way it is. We've been given this. And understand that our history will be part of our identity as we continue to seek Scripture for what it says for our lives. Scripture must be a constant source of renewal as we fine-tune that identity and godliness. Somebody asked one time, what is it you want to pass on to your children? And how do you know you're right? And that is a good question. Especially the how do you know you're right. And I guess we pass on the best that we understand. I would suggest today the same factors that form our identity also forge our vision. Because what we grapple with and begin to identify ourselves with becomes the core of the very thing we want to pass on to the next generation because this is where we've come out. It's just the way it tends to be. But I believe a deep concern to all of us needs to be what will church look like what will discipleship look like as he goes into the next generation? Because uh, this concern is at the heart of the concern to keep glorifying God and living out scriptural principles the way he means them to be lived and wants them to be lived and contributes to the uniqueness of God's people. I believe uh, it's at the core of that, that desire. Now, what we want to pass on is no simple answer. One thing we do not want to pass on is a sense of infallibility. We are not infallible. And be the worst thing in the world to give the next generation a sense that they are. Because it will keep them from seeking out answers for themselves and uh, undermining their discernment. But what we decide and how we live and the values we profess will be judged in their turn by the consequences they have in 50 years or 100 years. And they were the ones who stand to judge our decisions the same way we stand to judge the last ones. There are several things I would like to leave. I'm going to close, I promise. An example of faith to follow is a very important one. We read that verse in Hebrews 13, 7. Whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation? If we could leave an example to the next generation that they can follow and not react to, People tend to react to hypocrisy. People tend to react to um, a lack of sincerity about truth. And even if they wouldn't agree with all of our choices, may they at least respect the methods that went into making these choices. This requires that I grapple these issues. It requires I fight my battles to their conclusion to the best of my ability. 
which requires that I give due diligence to my own soul and live honestly before God and His people. And when I give that to the next generation, may they find me faithful in that. We need to give them a, a proper understanding of what the kingdom of God looks like. It's okay to be different. It's okay to be unique. It's okay to be a separate people. We need to give them an understanding that this is, this is authoritative. Scripture is authoritative. Above all of our ideals and our theories and what we call wisdom, this is higher. I need to practice these things in truth. I believe we could give our children, at least this is part of their identity, and pass this on from this framework that includes these things. We'd be giving them a godly history they need not react to, but embrace and cherish, and at least see some good in it. A proper concept of Scripture, the authority of Christ. And I think if we can give them this, we don't have to fear that they fine-tune their identity. If they, if they make these decisions in the context of these values, we don't have to be, be scared of that. We can hold these things and, and make good choices. So God bless you.